Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Can we just give it up for that worship? Seriously? They rock. You guys rock. I feel like I don't thank you guys enough. You guys rock. Thanks for doing that. Um, well, hey, everyone. My name's Trey. Welcome. Uh, glad you're here, and you've made it through quite a bit of snow the last few days. Raise your hand if you've went sledding. Anybody went sledding? Anybody unintentionally sled on the ice when they were walking somewhere? No? It, uh, I, uh, I realized that I was, I was a commodity in my neighborhood this week because uh, we were around a bunch of, like, um, younger rent, rentals and things like that, and uh, they're, like, texting me, Trey, Trey, do you have a shovel? And we have, like, one really cheap, crappy shovel, and that thing did a lot of damage the last few days. So I felt like I was a good neighbor to have that. Uh, well, hey, normally, uh, before I come up and, and uh, teach the Bible, we uh, usually have a story from someone. We, we believe in the power of story here. It's one of our DNA points, and we just want to share what God is doing in people's hearts and lives each Sunday. And so today's a little bit different. We don't have anyone coming up to share their story or their testimony or anything like that. I wanted to share a little bit of something that I've been pretty excited about that maybe a lot of you don't get to always kind of see behind the scenes. And so two of those things, one of those is the men's barbecue, which we had last Saturday. There's some photos here. We ate uh, just pounds and pounds of brisket, had a lot of new guys show up to that, and uh, we gave away a chainsaw, which was fun. We haven't heard anything bad about that yet, so that's good. Um, we had some wonderful food, got to have a kind of a challenge, and so that was fun. We're hoping to have another one of those in the next couple months. Um, so if you're a lady, you, you know what happened. We did hang out. We didn't lie to you. We did have fun. Uh, the second thing, which was this last week, I had the opportunity to go uh, on a retreat with uh, our church planning network, which is called Movement Churches Network. Uh, if you don't know, we were planted from Three Creeks Church and Movement Church, and uh, they've been so generous to us, yes. Um, and so every, every year, basically, we're moving forward in a timeline where we, we want to plant churches with them. And they've uh, movement planted Three Creeks about four or five years ago, and then they helped plant us um, in the last year or so. And so we're doing the same thing as them. We save $5 of every uh, every dollar, or 5% of every dollar that we get, and we save for church planning. And it was cool. We got to sit in a cabin. Uh, this is us three and our wives at Old Man's Cave, which was terrifying because there was ice everywhere. But if you've been here, it's only like 40 steps. So we just kind of slithered down the stairs and took this photo. But this is us in the cabin. Um, and it, we just basically had some time to pray for each other, reflect, and get excited about our future in church planting. Um, we are still being sustained by them for the next year. And uh, the way that that works is, is um, they help us for three years. They, they give 5% of all they're giving to us as we kind of grow. And then once our church is able to give enough, we are self-sustaining and then we'll go and we'll help plant churches. So the sooner that we can get self-sustaining, the sooner that we can help do that. Three Creeks, actually, I'm bragging on them, they went self-sustaining a year early so that we could happen. So had they have not done that, we would have had been another year behind. And so I just want to encourage you guys, this is what we're a part of, and it's really exciting. And the goal is, you know, in the next 25 years, is 25 churches. And uh, they're already excited about bringing on new residents and looking for that. So uh, I just wanted you guys to know that because that's a part of our DNA, and that's our DNA in several areas of multiplying, not just churches, but groups and communities. And uh, the gospel is a multiplying component of our lives. So that was super fun. Thanks for letting me get away. Um, I definitely was when you come back from retreat, you're like, well, life still kept moving, so it was a busy few days, but 
uh, it was fun for us to celebrate and reflect. So uh, we're going to jump in now. I'm supposed to transition into teaching now. So I was going to wear a hat and then take it off, but I figured that you would, you would, you would get it, that we're moving from story time to <laughs> teaching. So don't have another bumper video. We're going to be in Matthew. We've been in there. We've just been taking a nice little stroll with, with uh, Matthew for the last several months. And uh, we're at this point where Jesus has done enough to create kind of a, a bit of tension in the world he's at. People have different opinions of him, and to be honest, some of them are like close to being right, but most of them are very inaccurate and wrong, which is not too far off from the world that we live in. If you have a neighbor or someone in your life who thinks they know things about the church or Jesus, they've had bad experiences, a lot of their presuppositions are pretty far off. But in order to really see who Jesus is, even as his own followers... We have to look at the Gospels and, and what they're doing. And Matthew is unique because he's just throwing all these different, like a shotgun shot at, at a target. He's throwing all these different pieces of Jesus and he's just spinning them around and he's allowing you to see who is this guy. And so the last few weeks and this week and the next few weeks, we're just talking about what are people's different opinions of Jesus and probably more deeply and more critical, why do they have those opinions? Like you don't just have opinions to have them, right? You don't realize this, but typically they've been formed by uh, a certain way of life that you've lived, a way you've grown up, something, a trauma you've experienced, a goodness you've experienced, and that is the way that your thinking kind of starts to uh, turn. So in this instance, we're talking about some Pharisees again, which have been the, the, the key point of our story over the last few weeks. And so we're starting in, in uh, Matthew 12, verse 22. Stephen read, this is a big chunk of scripture, but it all kind of ties together. And uh, we're going to just start in verse 22, 23. It says, then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could speak and see. All the crowds were amazed and said, could this one be the son of David? Now remember, just before this, uh, Jesus has fulfilled this really long prophecy from Isaiah that he is this spirit-filled servant, that like his, his game plan for earth while he's doing ministry is being a servant who's following the 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 convictions, and the drive of the Holy Spirit. And in this instance, you kind of have another opportunity for Jesus to, to do something radical. Now, if you've been following along or you've read Matthew, you know, we're 12 chapters in. So Jesus has already done a lot of cool things. He's actually already uh, exercised, is that exercised, demons out of people uh, before. He's done it a few different times. And so this is not like a new story. Matthew's not like, oh, I, I, this is new. So if you, if you look and you kind of look at your passage, there's very like little about the, the exorcism itself. It's almost like it's less about the actual exorcism and more about the kind of opinion that is created from this type of healing and, and freedom. And the reason why for that is, like I said, he's already, he's already had a few exorcisms. People have seen that. But Matthew is getting at the reality of when Jesus shows up, how people think and what they feel, and, and, and basically their own opinions of who Jesus is. And so they started to say, you know, people are amazed. You know, the, the general people are like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. He did it again. And they say, could this be the son of David? If you remember, uh, this is kind of a quick Old Testament lesson. But the son of David, David the king, it was, it was prophesied that the lineage of the Christ would come through the lineage of David. And so they're thinking the son of David is like, is this the Messiah? Which is constantly the question, right? People are wondering, is this the Messiah? Well, the problem is, is, you know, everybody has their own opinions of what that looks like, right? Some people thought he's going to come in with a battle axe and just start bashing Romans. Other people thought he was going to come in and create this kind of elusive community that might shift into a different uh, area or a different 
rule, and, and they have a lot of different opinions, right? And so they're always asking, could this, could this be, is this the Messiah? What's interesting about this specific uh, exorcism is that the, the Jewish culture at this time was, was actually, had seen these, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, in fact, today, uh, I don't, I don't want to be an overgeneralist, but if you were to go to an area in Africa, you would probably see these types of things happening more frequently than you'd realize. They happen even in America. And you're probably like, well, I haven't been in an exorcism, and that, that doesn't seem like it's on our calendar. Um, but but all, I, all I want to get at with this is there is, a, there is a marrying between the physical and spiritual realm. And in Jewish first century, everybody knew that and assumed that. Today, not so much. We believe in science, right? So we're like, how do we reconcile this? But at the end of the day, we know that, that we are not waging war against the world, right? That's against the principalities and the powers of, of the spiritual realm. There's a battle going on even right now. Now, it could be something as simple as, like, you go, you're going to go to, um, you know, a gathering or a group where you're really going to find freedom, that God knows that, and the devil tries to thwart that. And maybe he makes you sick or he makes you insecure. He starts to put lies in your head. There, there, there's that level of spiritual warfare. But there's also a level of significant physical spiritual warfare. And if you look at a lot of Jesus' Jesus' exorcism before this, he's always casting out not only the spiritual oppression, but it has a physical ramification with it as well. And I don't know if, and you might think, well, that's then, right? This is now. I don't, I don't walk around people who I think are demon-possessed, right? And I think, we, we, the, I think Satan wins at this because we tend to overgeneralize. Like, oh, unless you are running around writhing with your mouth and breaking chains, you're not demon-possessed. And I, it's, not, it's not that simple. Uh, there's a lot of you who have generational sin. You have strongholds in your life where demons are holding you down in that area. It doesn't mean that you run around with foaming at the mouth, but there is, there is oppression in your life. And that can do just as much harm with pornography or anxiety and depression than it can with a physical um, reality. And I would, I would argue, you could even argue this with science in the physical realm, is that if you have anxiety or depression, it absolutely has ramifications on your physical health. I don't know about you guys. I'm at the point now where I'm a little seasonally depressed. Like, I could use a little more sun, a little less snow, a little more. I'm ready to go to Florida. I don't know about any of you guys. Okay? And to think that that doesn't have bearing on my energy and, and my actual, like, vitamin levels and serotonin and hormones is silly, right? Like, you can, if you felt it, you felt it, Right? And it's because those realities are, are married. It's not just a physical realm or even like a mental realm, but it has, they're all married together. There's so many pieces that's holistically together as God created humans. And in this instance, we see that not only is he demon-possessed, but that he was mute and blind. In fact, a common uh, oppression with demons is, is, is being mute. They have so much control over your mouth, and they can't, you can't speak. And so all I want to kind of just focus on, if you look at the foundation of this passage here, is that the spiritual world and the physical world are extremely um, tied to the rest of our dimensions in human experience. So we can't separate them. And, and I don't want you to overplay, well, I don't have, I'm, not, I'm, like, I'm not breaking chains and living in a cemetery, in a, a graveyard, so I'm not even possessed. I do not want you to think like that because there is the reality of a lot of people who are experiencing demonic oppression, and it looks so much different, and that wins for the devil because we're not addressing it. So Jesus heals him, right, right after this. He heals him so that he could speak and see that his, his manifestation um, of, of the healing in this guy, if you just said, okay, the demon's gone, people would be like, okay, well, is he gone? It's like when Jesus says, should I heal you of your ailment or your sins? Which one will show you that I have authority over your sins? 
the physical element. So he removes this demon, and the guy can immediately see and speak, and everyone around him is astounded. Now, this is a great scene, right? Wrap up the story, collapse, Jesus is awesome. But you cue the, uh, the jealous, hard-headed Pharisees, right? These guys are just like the classic villains in the story, and they are not happy. What do they have to say? In, uh, in verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, he does not cast out demons except by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Remember, they had just, uh, they had just tried to cut down Jesus a little bit earlier, a couple weeks ago, with the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath rules, and then Jesus is like, I invented the Sabbath. I can do what I want, basically. I'm paraphrasing. And, uh, and he does that, and the Pharisees are not happy about that. That was the first moment where they're like, all right, we're going to kill this guy. Like, he is, he is cutting at our own comfort and our own kingdom and world that we live in. We can't have it. And in this instance, again, they are not happy, which is so funny. Like, a guy is freed from oppression, and what, what do these guys do without even celebrating? They're like, oh, well, you know, he's evil, and he's doing it by evil spirits, which is just the classic understanding of the state of their heart. They can't even celebrate freedom. But what's, what's interesting to note is the Pharisees' angle here is really, really unique. The Pharisees cannot deny the power that Jesus has. Think about that. The Pharisees cannot deny the power that Jesus has. They're not capable of saying, well, that didn't really happen. It's in front of everyone's faces. We're at this point now where the Pharisees before would be able to be like, oh, do this thing or do that thing, or oh, he didn't really do Like They would play it off like it didn't really happen. Or, or oh, even, even a sorcerer could do that, right? And they're starting to lose that game because the authority of Jesus cannot be denied. People have seen it. They've experienced it. And the, the, the growing crowd uh, is, is just holistically like, yeah, this guy has power. So even the Pharisees, even the demons don't deny the power that Jesus has. The only angle they have here is to talk about where it has come from. So they try to confuse it. In verse 25, 26, now when Jesus realized what they were thinking, I love this. He just like sees to the core of, of, of his opponents, like their heart. He says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed and no town or house divided against itself will stand. So Satan casts out Satan. He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This is pretty simple logic. Basically, Jesus is just like, look, um, why would I cast out my own demons if that was my plan? Like, why would, why would Satan wage uh, destruction on his very own demons and plan. And this is like a pretty cool side of Jesus where you're like, oh, it's like logic Jesus. He's just like playing it very matter of fact. Like this doesn't make any sense. Why would I do that? And that's kind of what he's saying. And then he moves it on farther and he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, Beelzebul is just another name for Satan, the accuser, uh, the like head demon, if you will, if that's kind of what you're thinking of. Um, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. So he goes a step farther. He says, let's say even I am Beelzebul. I am saying I am this evil demon, right? If I'm, if I'm that, then who, then who are your very own casting out demons? Meaning the Pharisees had Jewish people who were doing exorcisms as well. Like they were casting out demons. So he's like, if I'm, if I'm Satan, then who are those guys? Are those Satan as well? Are you going to accuse anyone who casts out demons? Because you seem to be pretty okay with them doing it. And they're doing a bunch of wild, crazy rituals and crazy things to try to exercise demons. And Jesus is just like using a word of authority and it's gone. So he's like, you guys are just so hypocritical. You're throwing your own people under the bus to try and prove an argument that doesn't make any sense. This is like pure lawyer Jesus right here. He is just shredding them. And uh, one commentator, he puts it bluntly. He just says, 
exorcism presupposes a hostile supernatural force which can be countered only by a more powerful spiritual authority. And Jewish exorcists were understood to be acting by the power of God. So when they were doing this, they were claiming the name of Yahweh to free these spirits in very much the same way Jesus was doing it. The Pharisees can be assumed to be as much in favor of the practice of other Jews. Why then should Jesus' exorcisms be any more sinister? They're just totally throwing out their own like logic to, to be willing to slander um, the spirit and what Jesus is doing. And I just, I want you to think about that for a second. Like, is there areas of your life or people around you's lives where they're just so willing to fight tooth and nail for something that they just forsake all logic, they forsake all consistency in their own pattern of life just because they can't imagine the ramifications of if it was to be true? Like, I'm like, this is like, you want to you pick one of Trey's top five sins, here you go. Like, I will just argue, like, there'll be points sometimes where I, like, know I'm wrong. And it's just, like, I just kind of want to win, you know? Like, in marriage, you're like, yeah, she's right, but I just kind of want to win this one, you know? Or, like, I, like, you know, well, you know, I, like, try to, like, kind of slowly step out of it. Well, you know, I didn't really mean that, or, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one here, okay? <laughs> but you do it, and you're like, I don't even believe this. That's part of, I just, you know, I love debating and arguing, but... But it's like, I don't even, you know, I, it's so easy for us to start to justify something we kind of know is wrong, but we put our heads in such an area that, you know, you just, you want to believe it's right. In fact, there was an area, and this is being really honest, we were, we were at the network retreat, sitting in a hot tub, and there was, an, there was a, uh, me, Mark, and Joel, who are elders slash church planters, and we're just, we love to talk about crazy things in the hot tub, and there was something that came up theologically that, that I had yeah, you can't get that one out of your head, can you? <laughs> fully clothed. Uh, not fully clothed. but <laughs> We're never going to step back from that one. Could you imagine fully clothed in a hot tub, though? No, okay. Anyways, can we move on, or should we give it a few seconds? This is like, you guys are going to want to hear the podcast on this one. In the hot tub, okay, discussing theological things. And I got to the point where I was just like, I was on one, I was like on one bet, and I was arguing this one stance, and, and Mark and Joel were like, no, definitely not. And we just got this argument, and we started arguing for like 30, 45 minutes, and it got to the point where I had created such a, um, I put such my pride and identity into the very argument that at some point I started to realize, I think I'm wrong, but I didn't want to admit it. You know, you know, what, I mean? you know what I'm saying? And so what do you do? You kind of, you back out, you keep going, and after a while, we went upstairs, and at that, at, towards the end, I had kind of like simmered down in terms of like realizing I didn't have anything to throw left. You know what I mean? I was kind of out of ammo. And I went upstairs, and I was going in, in, in the room, and I was just like praying. I'm like, man, it sounds silly. I'm like, what would Jesus do in this instance? And I was like, yeah, I think I'm wrong, you know? And of course, I go back, and like I give them my like, hey, I, I think you guys are right. But I say it like very like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you're right. You know what I mean? Like very like, man, yeah. But at the end of the day, that's what Jesus does. And we're all, like, he frees us from those things. But in reality, like, my heart was way off. Like, it did not want to admit that. Even on something like a pastor, like, you know, I should know the Bible. I should have really solid theology. I should be a stronghold of what we believe biblically. And here I was just kind of like, I had an idea and it was just off course. And I think that it's so telling of our own hearts and how capable all of us are to have this sort of hard, hard-hearted, hard-headed, pharisaical reaction to things in our lives in certain areas. 
that there's certain areas of our lives that we hold so tightly that we get defensive immediately, right? Like, you know, if someone talks to you about your finances, you just kind of like, you know, you tighten up and you're like, don't you talk to me about that, you know? Or, or they talk about your marriage or maybe your parenting, right? Sarah and I have dealt with that. You hang out with parents and you all have different parenting strategies and you're like, you know, uh, you know, you get all cringy when they ask you about something and you're like, you don't want to like prove me they're wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like you feel it. You have it. You have your presuppositions. The Pharisees have these. And Jesus is saying, look, there is a large amount of demonic oppression and spiritual oppression that is affecting the posture of these Pharisees' hearts. And he says in verse 28, 29, he takes it a step farther. He says, if I cast out demons, he says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. Meaning, the Spirit has claimed you for the kingdom. The kingdom is a big language we use in Matthew. It's basically just your own reign and God's reign. Your kingdom, God's kingdom. And it, it, it engages you with the kingdom of God. And then he says, how else can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his property unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can thoroughly plunder the house. Jesus is using this illustration. He's saying, look, there's a strong man. There's spiritual oppression in our lives. And if I'm going to go in and I'm going to set you free, I have to defeat the strong man. I have to tie him up. I have to bind his power. And that's what Jesus is doing with I mean, demons flee from him. They beg him to, to not, you know, like when he, he sends them into the pigs, they're begging his mercy. This guy, Jesus has such authority and power. And he's saying, I'll bind up the strong man. I wouldn't leave him so that I couldn't, like, thoroughly renovate the whole house. In fact, I think about this in terms of freeing us from oppression. A lot of us, and this is just so true of so many people, I was thinking of this, and I was thinking of an illustration of a cavity, I, uh, I don't know who to thank in my genealogy for my terrible teeth, but I get cavities all the time. It's the worst. I brush my teeth twice, twice a day. Brought the, bought the power toothbrush, you know, fluoride, you name it, right? I've tried it, okay? And just get, I just get cavities, you know? And, you know, you go in, and I was going to show a photo, but I thought some of you may hate this because I hate the dentist more than anything. Um, and I go in, and, and what do they do when they, when they fill a cavity, right? What do they do? They drill out, like if this is the cavity, they drill out all around it so that the plaque, the bacteria, all that type of stuff doesn't build up. And, and, and around that is good parts of the teeth, essentially, like parts that are, don't have bacteria or, pla or plaque or whatever that, that's affecting it and causing issues or could cause worse issues. But they don't just drill out the cavity and then leave it there. They fill it with something so that that, that you know, capable, vulnerable, structural wall of your tooth uh, does not continue to decay and have issues. And I think about this illustration, what Jesus is saying. He's like, so many of you guys have, have used the Jesus freedom card, like Jesus is my salvation, like a monopoly card, right? Like a get-out-of-jail card. And we've allowed our, ourselves to be, you know, the cavity to be removed, like the, the bacteria, the pain, the plague, the plaque, the, all that. But then we just sit there with an open tooth. Like, and, and what I mean by that is we don't, we don't center ourselves then on the feeling of meaning and purpose. The reality that the kingdom is here now, that it is not a oh, wait till you're dead card to use, but that it is being used now currently in the world that we live in. That Jesus is saying, look, when I tie up the strong man, I am setting you free of the, of the, the cavity, the, the bacteria, the infection, but I'm going to fill it with meaning and purpose. I will not leave it to just be. And I think there's so many people in our lives, in certain areas of our lives, where we like have this, we experience freedom in this certain area, and we're just like, okay, cool, thanks, Jesus. And you just walk away. And you just think, like, you just use them as a genie almost. It's like, yeah, like, like it, you know, so you see so many healings and so many 
exorcism that Jesus does, it changes that person's life, and they're never the same. And they, and, and they just, the one guy, I remember, in uh, kind of the, the Gentile part of the world, the, the heathen, the Las Vegas of the, of the area, is like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go share my faith with everyone I know. I mean, you just freed me from this spirit that not only is the cavity, you know, removed, but it's filled with meaning and purpose. And so I just want to encourage you that it, there's a chance that the oppression that we've experienced, we've maybe felt like we've been set free from, but are we actually moving forward in a trajectory of meaning and purpose in our life? That the kingdom is a reality for those around us. They see in our lives. And he reveals this through the power of the Spirit. He says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He's not taking it lightly. There is no in-between. And I think that maybe you've heard someone quote Revelation where Jesus says that there's no lukewarm, that he spits them out of his mouth. It's a pretty um, aggressive uh, analogy, but you're either hot or you're cold. In some ways, he'd rather you just, he'd rather you pick than sit in this limbo, right? There's, there's, hot, there's no lukewarm followers of Jesus. Because the very, the very thesis of Jesus is I give up my life because he gave up his life for me for others. There's no, there's no lukewarm in that. You don't just give up your whole life in a lukewarm manner. And here in the same way, he's like, if, like, if you're not willing to accept this, you're hot or you're cold, and, and I think about this because the, what they accuse him of in this moment is blasphemy. I don't know if you guys use that word very often. Probably not. But in verse 31, it says, For this reason I tell you, people will be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Jesus is essentially tried and killed for blasphemy, that he said he was, he called himself God. That was what the Jewish people said. In fact, in Chapter 9, we read this before several weeks ago. Um, After getting into a boat, he crossed the other side and came to his own town. And just then some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Remember they, they, uh, they, remember they put him down through the, the roof. It's a really crazy story. And he says, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the experts in the law of the Pharisees said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. And Jesus said, saw the reaction and why did he... He says, why do you respond with evil in your hearts? So Jesus is actually taking what they're, 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 they are blaspheming, like him and the spirit. And he flips it and he's like, look, whoever's blaspheming, it's a serious ordeal. Blaspheming is basically um, slander. It is, like, it is slander, malice, malice intent. So it's not as maybe gossiping necessarily, but it's, it's, it's furthering a lie. And it, it's slandering something or someone. And... And the Pharisees are, are basically showing us what true blasphemy looks like. It's a, one commentator said it's, it's a complete perversion of, of spiritual values, revealing a decisive choice of the wrong side in the battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. It is this which has shown these Pharisees to be against Jesus, and it is this diametrical opposition to the good pers- purpose of God which is ultimately unforgivable. You read this, you probably read this before, verse 31, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And you're like stressed, you know? I don't know about you, you're like, oof, that one's not forgiven? I thought Jesus forgave all sins. Like, what, what am I to do here? That seems pretty bad. And then you start to like rock your brain. You're like, have I, have I blasphemed like the Spirit? You know, you're like starting to figure out if you've done that because then if so, you're in trouble, right? And what he's getting at here, and there's several instances of that, that phrase and talking about that, the unforgiven sin, right? Grieving the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I don't want to say don't worry about it because it does have significance, but it's far more about this situation than it is this holistic, like, 
the person following Jesus should be stressed about, like, have I, have I 10 years ago blasphemed blast the Holy Spirit and now I'm like, I'm just pointless, like I'm never going to be forgiven. But in this moment, it's, it's showing you the critical condition in the heart of the Pharisees. It's kind of like Pharaoh, if you remember the story of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, and Moses kept coming to him and, coming, and his, hard, his, his heart kept getting more and more hardened to the point where it's basically like there is no reconciliation for Pharaoh. He has chosen himself over the will of God, and he is, his heart is hardened, that he is, he is so far against God in, in the opposition. That's what these Pharisees are. They are so far against God. They're not only neutral, they're not only like indifferent, they are aggressively against the very things of God. In fact, they're calling evil good and good evil. So it's less about the ordinary sins that we worry about, like what's ordinary, what's not, this sin seems to... It's more about the heart in this situation of them slandering and blaspheming the Spirit. Jesus says in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now this is like another verse, you're like, oh, that one doesn't make any sense either, because am I able to speak against Jesus but not the Spirit? Like, what is the difference here? They're both God, right? Like, how does that work? And and that, so both of these passages, 31 32, I think people have a hard time with. And this one is a little complex. I don't have a ton of time to cover it. But think about Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest, the, the foundation, the rock of our church. Like, we're here today because of Peter. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he has countless times again and again where he essentially um, blasphemes what Jesus is doing. Like, I don't know if you remember, there's one time where Jesus is like, I'm going to go this, I'm going to be handed over and crucified. And, and Satan like takes him aside and rebukes him. You know, he's like, you're crazy, Jesus. This is like, what are you thinking? And then Jesus says, my favorite line, get behind me, Satan. You know, he's like, get out of here. I'm not going to have it. And you're like, that's a pretty serious situation, right? Peter is essentially blaspheming Jesus. And, and, and the difference between, and I think what we're getting at in this passage is, what is the difference? Peter was clearly forgiven. I would say God blessed him and used him for the church. So what's the difference here? Is that Peter is walking hand in hand with Jesus, trying to figure out his plan. And there's a lot of kind of cryptic parts to Jesus' plan. I mean, he does say it clearly when we read it, but in, in living in that reality, it'd be very difficult to really figure out who is this guy. And even after that, they needed the Holy Spirit's help to figure it all out. But the Spirit is showing a clear manifestation of its power in front of everyone to see there's no denying it. Not only this man had a demon removed from him, but he can now see and speak. And it would be no doubt that the Spirit's power was there and they still denied it. And so the weight of this is far greater in the Spirit because the Spirit is ministering in action. It's a presence that we see and can feel and can experience and in this instance, everyone had seen it. There was no denying it. And yet these Pharisees are still hardened of heart and denying it. That if they can't even accept what is right in front of them, and not only that, they can't not accept it, but they try to throw it into an evil, demonic category. That they are slandering the very work of God from, in its worst of ways. Like they are, they are as far off as they could be. Like if your trajectory is pointing a certain way and Jesus is like, they are just wholeheartedly the other way. Like there is no coming back for them, and, and it's the weight and the severity of this. And this is why Jesus takes it, if you look in your Bibles, it's probably another section, verse 33 through 37. He takes it into an analogy about trees. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. 
Offspring of vipers. That's a fun little phrase there. You ever call anyone that? Jesus said it, so. How are you able to say anything good since you are evil? For the mouth speaks from what fills the heart. The good person brings good things out of his good treasury, and the evil person brings evil things out of his treasury. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every worthless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, this is, this is some of some serious language. Jesus doesn't use very many mean terms, like name-calling, you know, if you will. But this is probably one of his most severe because of the weight of what is occurring. The slandering of his spirit is not okay. And he's not having any of it. He calls them snakes, vipers. They're like this venomous aggression. It's kind of that what that phrase uses. And he flips, he flips like, it's funny. They were saying he was doing evil. He was actually doing good. What they were doing they thought was good was actually evil. He flips it completely on its head. And then he shows us, and I think we ask this question to ourselves, that, that what we say has direct correlation on our hearts. Like, think about this. Does what I say have direct correlation on my heart? For the most part, yeah. I mean, you could definitely go in somewhere and try to act a certain way and know you have to, like, when you go to a job interview, um, you know, and they're like, name one of your worst qualities. And you're like, I just care too much, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, like, you know what to say in an interview, right? I, knew, I mean, some of you maybe are terrible at interviewing, I'm sorry, but for the most part, it is a theater performance, right? You can impress someone for an hour, right? You, unless you see Step Brothers, they do a terrible job, but it's, <laughs> they do a terrible job. Do not do what they do, but you can impress someone for an hour. Now, what you can't do, and a lot of people do this in the business world, is they go play golf. You cannot impress them as much when you play golf because, man, if you're not good at golf, like, you got to hold your tongue, you got to try not to cheat. That's another one. If you're good at golf, you got to be humble about it, right? Like, there's a lot you learn in, in golfing. But in an hour, you can impress anyone. But your words typically, after a while, and you know this when you've been in a relationship with people, after you can't hide anymore, you're like your true self, and you may be in a marriage too, your words are indicative of your heart. They're indicative of your posture, of where you want to go, of your passion and your vision. They are incredibly indicative of your heart. And that's said all throughout the book of James. There's tons of proverbs on the tongue, right? Talk about the tongue and how it's like a flaming. It has such power. It can be good or bad. It's like a fire. And Jesus is not like saying anything new. But what he's saying in relationship to this is that the very things that we hold in defense of, like I was talking about uh, in the retreat, right? Like the words that come from that thing are pure, can be pure destruction and fire because you are you're pridefully revealing what your heart will not let go of. And so when you get defensive, when you say things, when you slander someone else because you're jealous or you're insecure or whatever, like it's, a, it's, a, it's directly correlated to your heart. And that's what he's saying here is he's saying, look, these Pharisees, because these guys talked, they taught, they were the, they were the, 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 the letter of the law. Like they, they orchestrated the life of the, that people had to live. He's saying it's not even just their words. Their hearts are so far from me. Look at their fruit. And, and what is their fruit in this instance? Their fruit is a man is healed, set free from oppression, is no longer blind or mute, and what is their response? Oh, it's evil. It's pure evil. Like, they can't, their fruit is just terrible. It's, fair, it's, it's legalism. It's hypocrisy. That is their fruit, right? And that's the reason why I think a lot of churches, like people hate a lot of churches that have not experienced freedom in them is because they see them from the outside, and sometimes our fruit is terrible. Our fruit is, you know, being hypocritical. Our fruit is judging other churches or other people. Our fruit is um, being, like, stingy. I remember there was a church I was at. We would go out to eat sometimes after 
church on Sundays, and if you're a server, you know this, Sundays are the worst day to work because all the Christians go out to lunch and they don't tip. And you're like, what in the world? Bad fruit, right? Aren't we supposed to be the most generous people? Because at the end of the day, money's just money. Like, we can't be buried with it, right? Bad fruit is always indicative of a heart posture. And in this case, your words are always indicative of your heart posture. And he says, this is what is like really convicting and should send shivers. Verse 36, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every worthless word they speak. Think about that. He's not saying like, you know, jokes, right? Like if you make jokes and you're funny and you do a comedy stand-up, like God's not going to be like, that was terrible, you know? He might be like, that was funny. But, but actionless ones, words that come from our heart that at the end of the day have no good holistic intent. They are malicious, they are slandering, they are blaspheming. And think about that. In your own life, are there areas that you will say certain things to place yourself higher up than someone else? more secure in an area. than like th- there, there are things that we say to try to get a better you know, social status, to work our way up the career ladder, to appear as though we have it all together. I always wonder if people do that to me, like if we go over to someone's house for dinner and they're like, oh, the pastor's here, like got to tighten up the house. Like heaven forbid we be you know, sinners, right? And not have a perfect house. Like I always wonder if people do that to us. It's like, do I need to create a fake impression to Trey so that you know, he thinks I'm spiritually mature or that like I have my life together or... Then he'll ask me to do a bunch of things, you know, like whatever it is, right? We're all, we all have this, and, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what so-and-so thinks, it matters what God thinks. God cares about the words that we use because they can be rooted in a heart that is against him, it is in opposition to him. Jesus is basically saying, you live a life where you say things, you justify the life you are living, but your fruit is rotten and your words have no value. And they don't have any value because they don't usher in love and grace, which is a kingdom virtue. So where does this leave us as we close here? Uh, I want to invite Nick up and the band. Where does this leave us? You know, it's, it's a weird passage because it's all one thought, but it has a lot going on. It has, uh, has Jesus' power being revealed and no one denying it. It has the opinions of Jesus pushing in a trajectory the opposite way of what he truly came for, freedom. Instead, it's like legalism and oppression. And then you have, not only that, you have Jesus kind of teaching about the weight of words. So, like, where does this leave us, and why is this all together, right? Because it, it does seem like it's, like, three different teachings, right? Like, demonic oppression, the power of the Spirit, and Jesus' freedom, and then words and their value in our heart. And at the end, at the end of this, I think it's a, a heart check for us. Words are one of many, many methods or symptoms that are indicative of our heart. It's one of many things we can do. Our actions also are, are valued by our hearts. And, and I, I just want to ask this question. I want us to, to ruminate on this. Do your words lead into action which further reveals love to those around you? Do they speak life and freedom? Do they honor the Spirit? And at the end of the day, I think that is the question. Do I honor the Spirit? Do I honor the Spirit? Not only with my words, because we know your words are ultimately rooted in your heart. Is there an area of your heart, like the Pharisees, that you can see a good thing happen in someone's life around you in general, and your heart is almost angered by it because you're, you know, you're insecure, you're jealous, you name it, right? How can I have a freedom in that? The freedom in that comes from this humility. And, and I want to close with, with that idea of humility because at the end of the day, this is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, like, 
these Pharisees are so counterintuitive to the kingdom because it's all about their heart and what they want to do. Um, one of the coolest things we did at the end of this retreat, we were leaving on Wednesday, and um, each one of us did like a devotional each day. And the last day, I was praying about it, and I thought the Lord was just really guiding me to Romans 12, which is, there's a verse in there that, that tells you to outdo one another in honor. It's the only verse in the entire Bible that is what Christians should be competitive about, is outdoing one another in honor, which I think is kind of cool if you're a competitive person. Um, you're like, I'm going to over-encourage this person. I'm going to beat you at it. Like that's, we're joking about that. And so we spent the next um, hour, hour and a half in prayer and thinking through what are the, who are people that have honored us this last year? You know, code was hard, and, and we shared some things. And then what, how can we honor one another? So we just spent like an hour, hour and a half, just like honoring one another in areas we feel like God has been, they've been faithful to God, that their heart has been, has been proven by good fruit, right? It was just like the coolest thing. And, and I'm telling you, you leave that room in any situation like that, if you do that with anyone, and you leave that room feeling just, just so great, not only about yourself, but about, like, God has created the tongue in, in, in a way that can honor and, and love people radically. It can also tear down and slander people radically. And to experience the weight of outdoing one another in honor was such a beautiful thing. And, and so as we close, it's not just not doing the bad but it's thinking about the weight of the good in people's lives. Like, what would it look like to just outdo one another in honor? What would it look like for our words to be, to be rooted in this security in Jesus that we don't have to, to play this game? And at the end of the day, the things that we're holding on to don't really matter that much, the, the securities that we thought. And so as we close, we always offer a time of um, bread and cup, which is, uh, or the communion, the Lord's Supper, and we do this because this reminds you of the very need for Jesus so that the things you want to see that you feel like the Spirit is convicting you into that you can do because of what Jesus has done for you first and the Spirit's power in your life. So I want to encourage you, if you're a believer, you can take that. Uh, we also have, I want you to reflect on, am I honoring the Spirit in my heart and in my words? And then uh, we also have people in the back who'd love to pray for you. We are singing, uh, Oh, Come to the Altar, Correct. Uh, which technically the altar would be here, but they will be in the back. So if you want prayer during that time, uh, they will be in the back. And uh, I just encourage you to just take some time and reflect on this. Am I honoring the Spirit in my heart and in my words? Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.